will be in Colossians chapter 3, again, verses 18, chapter 4, verse 1. And if you don't have a Bible, the verses will be on the screen. Wives, submit to your own husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And in whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for the gift of you revealing yourself to us, of making yourself known through your word. We would be lost, God. Everything would be hazy and foggy if it were not for the clarity, life-giving gift of your word. So, God, we pray now in this time as um, we're going to hear your word taught, we pray, as always, God, just that, that special prayer asking that it would truly be your words, that heaven and earth could connect right now as we have your word open and we believe your spirit poured out upon us. So, Holy Spirit, we pray you would give us all ears to hear what you, Holy Spirit, let you be the preacher. May we have ears to hear what you are speaking to each one of us. And God, I do pray that you would speak. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the title of my sermon this morning is The Power Struggle. The Power Struggle struggle. Um, there is no question, there's no question that we live in a time when many people are hesitant towards and even resistant against authority. There's no question, especially my generation. I kind of fall between the line of millennial and generation X. Depends what, you know, if you're on Wikipedia or not, determines what you think. But I know certainly for millennials, there is this mass exodus that's happening in my generation that is away from more traditional forms of authority, communities of faith, um, communities of, of spirituality. And there's this exodus that's happening that is uh, towards more of this individualism and uh, full autonomy. It, it, I think it'd be fair to say that that is, is, in a lot of ways, the greatest value of this generation. The value of um, full autonomy and individualism, uh, kind of starting and ending with me. This is what we would call this idea that we have. I don't know if it's completely the, the true definition, but it's the idea of freedom. Freedom, which in a lot of ways ends up to be its own slavery. But this is certainly the way that our generation is, is moving, away from, again, more traditional standards of authority, and more towards individualism, kind of hyper-individualism even. So what you have in our generation is this natural anti-authoritarian bend. We don't like people giving us direction necessarily, telling us certainly what to believe or why to believe it, um, this independence. Now, I want to say this before we 
kind of raise our fists and go, yeah, it's a problem. Um, yeah, it is a problem, but it is a problem that's largely existing because of legitimate reasons. A lot of the reasons why many young people today have such a resistance towards authority is because there have been such great abuses of power that we've witnessed, not just in history, but we've all witnessed our own version, our own experience of some sort of abuse of power. Someone was entrusted with a certain level of authority, and instead of leveraging their authority to help others, they leveraged their authority to serve themselves. We would call these people power trippers. You have them at work. You might have them at home. You had them growing up. You know, it's certainly a macro lens that we could look at this from, right? We could look at this epidemic, in a sense, from the lens of history. We know that there have been power-tripping leaders, to say the least, over history. Maybe it'd be more fair to say power-abusing leaders. Um, we've seen this, and there's a lot of stir in our country about this in regards to big conversations about law enforcement. This is a constant, whether or not we agree with everything, this is a conversation that we need to have. People genuinely feel like people in authority and power can't be trusted because they use it for selfish gain instead of the benefit of people. And come on, you know that, you know it's not just the big picture stuff. Zoom into your life for a second and just think about in your own life where you've seen authority abused. You've seen rather people abused through authority. We see it in business. We see it in politics. We see it a lot in the church. And there's something about spiritual authority that carries an extra weight. It almost makes you submit more than you would for a financial gain. It's, and we see it in homes. We see families that are crushed by the father who instead of stewarding his level of authority, he is leveraging it again for his own gain. Now, um, I'm going to just kind of, uh, I guess, lighten the air a little bit <laughs> this morning. Good morning, by the way. But I want to just say this, that this is not a new thing, okay? The, the, the abuse of power, the oppression of people by authority and by leaders or in homes or in this idea of kind of I want to be anti-authoritarian anti because of all these issues I see, it's been this way from the beginning of humanity, you can follow this cord back, this line all the way back into the Garden of Eden. And it was in the Garden of Eden that the first man, the first woman, our parents, were given and entrusted with a certain level of power. The power to have this free will, this power to have a relationship with God. You could think in a sense they were entrusted with this power to steward creation. They had a mandate. They had a mission from God, and with what God gave them, they didn't use it for the purpose for which God gave them, which was to see the earth and humanity flourish and for God to be glorified. Instead, they leveraged, again, their power for self so they could be like God. It started in the Garden of Eden, and then the story goes on. In fact, the Old Testament does not hide the horrendous effects of sin when it comes to authority and power. You read the Old Testament, it's just like a downward spiral that's why there's verses like Proverbs 29, verse 2, which says this, that when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. And Israel knew this well. They had leaders who used the authority for the benefit of the nation, and they had other leaders who drove their nation 
through the ground, not just into the ground, but like deep into the ground, all right? Destructive leaders. And so Solomon writes and he says, man, it's, it's a joy to the hearts of people when the person who's in authority is righteous. And it is a grief and a groan to the hearts of the people when those that are in authority are, are wicked, are self-centered. And then, as he often shows up as the good hero and the, the superhero to every story, we get this man named Jesus. And Jesus comes into the scene. The context and the culture is you have a wicked authority, Rome, oppressing and enslaving the people. And Jesus comes into this scene. And what does Jesus do for humanity? As God becomes flesh and dwells among us and we behold his glory, we see through Jesus, listen, a new way, a new way to be in authority and under authority. See, the issues surrounding authority don't just have to do with those that are in authority. Some of us, our larger issues are not just people in authority, but it's us under authority. Sin doesn't just affect the ones that are in power. There's sin all over this mess. This is a disaster. So Jesus comes in, and the gospel really is Jesus in and under authority, giving us a new way to be in and under authority. Um, there's this great encounter that Jesus has with his disciples. It's in Mark chapter 10. And Jesus is teaching his disciples about a new way to be in authority. And the, the kind of the events surrounding this setting, which usually... You know, we kind of focus a lot on Jesus' words and his teachings, but let me tell you, the bread and the, the, the butter, whatever you want, what is this? Well, I don't know what that phrase is, the good stuff, is, is not always in just what Jesus says, but it's really fun to study the context in which Jesus applies some of his teachings. In this case, in Mark 10, you have um, the disciples, and two of them, James and John, brothers, sons of Zebedee, they, Matthew tells us, they are too afraid to ask Jesus their self-centered questions, so they have their mom ask him for them, okay? And the mother goes up to Jesus, and it's really the disciples asking this question. That's why Mark doesn't even mention the mom. He's like, the disciples are asking. And the mother of these two sons says to Jesus, can my sons, James and John, you know, your right-handed man, can they, speaking of your right hand, can they sit on your right and left hand in your glory? in your kingdom. Jesus kind of, I just imagine him rubbing his head. Because he knows, he's like, Mama Zebedee, it's okay, just go home, okay? You know, you, you, know, you tried, you know? You're a sweetheart, you know? Probably threw out a bless her heart, you know? She left. And then called the disciples to himself, and these two guys come, and, and Jesus says, man, you have no idea what you're asking for, first of all. Because Jesus knew that exaltation would come through suffering. That's the way of the kingdom. You go low and God puts you high. You put yourself high, God puts you low. Jesus says, you have no idea what you're asking. And self-centeredly, they thought, yeah, we do. And the Bible tells us this, actually, that the other disciples, as they looked on, they were saddened. The other 10 were like, man, that's sad what they're doing. Why was it sad? Well, think about what they were doing. James and John were leveraging the power of their relationship with Jesus. Not in the way that we should but in a way that was self-centered. Hey, Jesus, we're kind of your best buds and all, and we're one of the original followers, OGs here. We were part of the church in the first week, you know? We were part of your core team, Jesus, you know? And Jesus, we're, we're really in with you. We just wondered if we could use this for us. And Jesus, after 
telling them they have no idea what they mean. He, he gives what they are asking for. He gives them a teaching, and he says this in Mark 10. He says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. In other words, hey, I don't blame you. I know this is what you're used to, guys. You're used to, in your culture, when people are in authority, when they have power, when they have position and prestige and opportunity, they often use that authority to be a domineering, lording leader, to lord over the people and to exercise their, look at, high officials over them. You see the idea, I'm up here, you're down there. And Jesus, speaking to his followers, he says these simple four words, not so with you. Yeah, it might be normal in your culture. This might be how it's always been since Adam. But I'm Jesus, and I come to bring the way of the kingdom, and you're followers of me, so not so with you. No. This is not the way of the kingdom. You see, Jesus says this. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus is showing his disciples a new way to be an authority, a new way to leverage power. Uh, you could say it this way. Jesus is teaching his disciples to see power as something that has been entrusted by God that has responsibility attached to it. To whom much is given, much is required. If you have any level, any degree of authority and responsibility in your life, that authority, that gift has responsibility attached to it has an expectation attached to it. And Jesus says, here's the expectation, not to leverage your power to serve yourself, but to be what we would call a servant leader, right? Come on, how many of you guys know the value of a servant leader? Are you with me? Someone, listen, who looks a lot more like this. Have you seen this picture online? On top, you have the boss at his table with the mission. Above them, great picture there pointing the troops ahead, saying, go, I love, what are they doing? They're carrying what? Not just the mission, but his weight. And then you have another example of, I would say, which would be more in line with the teaching of Jesus, which says, here's the greatest way to leverage authority. Get dirty. Get into the game. Serve. Don't leverage your power for others to serve you and pull your weight, but see what God has given you in authority and use it in such a way that serves others. So if you're a leader, that should be you on the bottom servant leadership. Now, Jesus did more than teach this, didn't he? What saves us as Christians are not the teachings of Jesus. It's the life of Jesus. Do we know this? A lot of people, they want the teachings of Jesus. You can have the teachings of Jesus, and you could seek to live by them. What you desperately need is not the teachings Jesus taught, but the life that he lived. Jesus lived these teachings. So Jesus, the servant leader, John 13 tells us, it says this, towards the end of his life, Jesus, John 13 says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, what do you call that? Authority, right? All things into his hands, and that he had come from God. Imagine knowing this. I came from God, and I'm going to God. It says he rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded, knowing the authority he had. Servant leadership. Um, 
it gets much better than Jesus washing the disciples' feet. The gospel is the good news of Philippians 2. Listen to this. It says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, and did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Jesus shares the authority of God Almighty. Verse 7 says, but he laid those truths aside and he made himself of no reputation, coming in the form of a, what, bondservant. And coming in the likeness of men, that would have been enough, right? For God to become a man, for God to take on our filth and live in our filthy world, that would have been crazy enough for God to leave his throne and do that. Yet God humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death, the most humiliating form of death in that culture, the death of the cross. This is what God is like. This is who Jesus is. And it's through that servant leadership that we're led to salvation. Because on that cross, Jesus willingly bore our sin. So that today we could bear his righteousness. So that we could be forgiven through faith in him. Jesus in authority. But let's also remember this. The gospel is also Jesus under authority, isn't it? Jesus shows a new way to be in authority as a servant leader, leveraging our authority to serve others. But the gospel is also Jesus who has, he told his disciples in Matthew 28, verse 18, he has all power and authority in heaven and on earth. But this Jesus, with all power and all authority, submits to his Father. The beauty of the Trinity, this harmonious relationship, it's this harmony, uh, one scholar described it, I was reading, the Trinity is this ongoing harmony of deference. Defer to you, defer to you, defer to you. It's a, that's, by the way, that's a healthy family, isn't it? When you're like, my dad's awesome. Dad's like, my kids are awesome. And the kid's like, no, dad, you're the best. And he's like, have you seen my wife? You know, like, that's a healthy family. Constantly deferring. That's a healthy church. Would you agree? No, not me, not my glory. Not, it's not how awesome. Have you seen them? Have you seen them serve? Deference. And this is the nature of who God is. The Spirit always seeking to glorify the Son. The Son always seeking to serve the Father and do His will. The Father always seeking to lead people to Jesus. Jesus using the Holy Spirit to lead people through Him to the Father. In the words of hip-hop, Shai Lin says, Father, Son, and Spirit, three and yet one working as a unit to get things done. I wish I had a dope track in the background while I said that, to be honest. But <laughs> Jesus under authority. Have you heard his words in John 6, 38? Here was Jesus with all power and all authority in the world. It says in John 6, 38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus under authority. Authority, and we know the extent of Jesus' submission when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is fully God. He is fully divine. Yet in Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, we get this window into the humanity of Jesus who can sympathize with our struggles, right? We need him to be God because we need a God to save us, but we need him in some way to sympathize with what we feel. And he did that as he became a man. And in that garden, we see his humanity on full display as he's looking at the cross before him. He is expecting and, and contemplating the pain and the suffering. The Bible says in Hebrews, it was the shame of the cross. He understood crucifixion. He understood that he would, as he read Isaiah, that he would bear the sins of the people. 
that he would receive stripes, that he would be bruised. He, he knew God's word. And in that wrestle, he says to God, Father, if it is your will, Luke twenty two forty two, 42, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, look at his submission, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus in and under authority. Aren't you thankful for the way Jesus is in authority? Aren't you thankful for how Jesus was under authority? Jesus' approach to authority is what has saved us. Do we realize that? As a servant leader submitting to the Father. And so as Christians, here's what this means. This gospel, it's good news to us. And then it becomes transformative through us. This good news that saves our lives from death and separation from God, we're reconciled to God through what Christ has done on the cross. This good news, it not only leads us to go, yay, I'm saved, but now I have a new way to be in authority. Now I have a new way to be under authority because look at my Savior. Look what he has done. The gospel transforms us. It changes how we live both in and under authority. And then here in Colossians, as Isaac read, Paul gives us three specific spheres of authority. Three spheres of authority. And there's many more than these three spheres in your life right now. I understand that. I know that you right now are juggling all sorts of spheres, okay? You are juggling all sorts of challenges of authority. And we're not going to nail them all today, but here's three of them. And I know right now you're going, Andrew, it's 1130. Stop. Okay. Um, no big deal. All right, real quick, we're going to cover wives submitting to husbands, parenting our kids so that they don't resent us, and we're going to explain why the Bible seems to condone slavery. Okay, let's go. All right. <laughs> Colossians 3, we started in verse 18. Let's look at each of these three spheres, and again, we're going to watch at these three spheres of authority that Jesus transforms. Let's look at each one here. The first one, the first sphere that we see the gospel transforming is applicable to every person in this room, whether or not you are married. It is the sphere of marital authority, the first one. Okay. And we want to ask ourselves these questions as we're learning. We're not just going, oh, information. We want to think application, right? So we're going, okay, how does this apply to my marriage? How does this apply to my expectations of marriage? Okay. So we see first how the gospel transforms the sphere of marital authority. As we read in verse 18 and 19, wives submit to your own husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter towards them. What do we have here? A few thoughts. We have instructions to husbands and wives. Instructions to husbands and wives. And just to break down what we have going on here, I want to embolden a few things. First, we have instructions to husbands and wives. Um, in other words, God's vision from the beginning is the union of a man and a woman in covenant. Not just, um, hey, I'm really into you. Hey, let's move in. Hey, we're sort of, we're committed. Verb. God has had this vision from the beginning of man and woman entering into the security of till death do us part to reflect who he is as a covenantal God, right? Covenant is based on vows, all right, or we would say promises, and it's done publicly before God and man. That's a covenant. And we see here this vision that God has for husbands and wives. The Bible says in Hebrews 13 that marriage is honorable among all. It's a verse that I like to read at every and any wedding that I officiate. Uh, this has certainly been the year for weddings. I've been doing a lot of weddings this year. I'm excited 
for them, by the way. Um, but I like to, at each wedding, share that verse, remind, hey, what you're doing is something that God looks on it as honorable. You're doing something that is very rare in this day and age, which is uh, committing. We love, don't we love, we love keeping our options open. Because what if I say I do, and then right the first day on the honeymoon, the one walks by? Okay? By the way, that's really self-centered. Um, you're probably looking in the mirror while you say that, you know? It's only unloving if you're speaking about a real person. I'm speaking about a hypothetical person, so it's okay, right? Um, Sorry, all right. Um, The Bible teaches this. Who is the one? The one is the one with whom you become one. Who's the one? The one with whom you become one. The two shall become one. Guess what? They're the one. Why? You're one. It's done. I didn't even mean for that to rhyme. Okay, next, next thing, look. And the big idea here is this, okay? Uh, Paul is writing instructions to husbands and wives, okay? Because, again, God's vision is marriage. Um, Where in our culture we glorify the wedding day, God values the last day. He he values the marriage. We we love the royal wedding. Where's the sitcom? Where's, sorry, not the sitcom. Where's the reality show of Meghan Markle and whatever the other prince's name is, throwing shoes at each other. You know what I'm saying? Real life stuff. We tend to glorify wedding vows and emotional experiences. We tend to glorify falling in love. God holds up the standard of staying in love. Marriage. Marriage. And the point that Paul's making is it requires work. It requires effort. It It requires investment. Kids come along, life gets harder, you look different (laughs) over time. (laughs) And it's going to require investment, it's going to require focus, it's going to require instructions. (laughs) How do we put this thing together? The big idea here is this, that listen, God knows best how to run the very institutions that he created. That's what we believe. We don't believe marriage is a contract with the government. I've heard that, why get married? It's just a contract with the government. That might be your understanding of marriage. Biblically, the idea of marriage is covenant. It's something God has instituted as the best option for your intimacy with someone because you have this cradle of security. You know they'll never leave you so you can be who you are. You don't have to be the boyfriend that has his best face on, the girl that has her makeup on. You got to put your best foot forward because if I don't, they might leave me. No, we're in covenant, just like our relationship with God. Come on, we can be who we are with God. Why? We're in covenant. So covenant, this is God's vision And so we have instructions to husbands and wives. And I want to point this out, husbands and wives. Instructions, let's embolden this word, to husbands and wives. Um, I want us to note the intended recipient of each of these instructions. This is very important. A.K.A. um, verse 18 says, wives, comma, Verse 19 says, husbands, comma. You know what the worst thing is like when you have your phone out and someone texts you and like it comes up on your phone, you're with someone and you're like, they can see my text that just came in. And you're kind of like, is, 
oh, it's just my text. Are you reading it? You know, it's kind of that feeling of like, this is for me. I'm the intended recipient. And I just want to say, husbands, verse 18 does not say, husbands, make sure your wives submit to you. Verse 19, wives, make sure your husband isn't so lame and loves you better. The intended recipient. This is for a specific person. Wives, he speaks to the wives and to the husbands, the intended recipient. Um, and he gives, let's look at these instructions, okay? Um, he says to the wives first, let's begin with the wives. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And so um, I would say this. Let me just kind of make it clear. So our understanding as a church when it comes to a lot of buzz today, a lot of conflict and just a lot of friction today when it comes to roles and life and equality, I want to say this first and foremost. Genesis 1 tells us that God made both male and female equally in God's image. Okay? Man, don't have an, we don't have an upper hand. If anything, the story goes like this. We needed help. So God created you know, 2.0, you know, like humanity 2.0. Woman comes along. The Bible teaches this, this consistent truth that there should be equality between the sexes because God has made man and woman both equal with dignity, value, and worth. Yet God is also... As an organizational God, even of himself, we talked about submission, he has established authority within the household. We believe this. So at, at Solus Church, we would say that we are complementarians, not chauvinists. We want to repent of that sinful thinking. And we are not feminists that want to man shame. We want to celebrate masculinity and femininity for the beauty of it is, of what it is. It glorifies God. And within that, we, we look at verses like Ephesians 5.23, which says this, that the husband is the head of the wife. Now, with that, we'll, and by the way, ladies, don't worry, we're going to get to that role in a second, okay? Um, I know there's like questions, okay? Submit here, the word has to do with, uh, Paul's borrowing a military term that has to do with coming under rank. That's what, literally what it means. And if you've been in the military before, you know that rank doesn't always determine um, competence <laughs> and intelligence, it's just authority. So sometimes you have to submit to someone, like you right now are like, my boss at work, I'm way smarter than him. Some of you wives are like, okay, I'm not gonna get there, but it's submitting, notice this, coming under, and here's the idea, barring this military term, under the headship and the authority of your husband. Not just at your wedding day, not just with some words, but it's what your life looks like. Okay, the full body of work of your life should look like this as a follower of Jesus. In submission. Now, there are exceptions, okay? Because there's, and by the way, I'm not going to be able to answer every question that's going to come up from this. Otherwise, we'll be here until 5 p.m. But obviously, if your husband is leading you to rebel against God, do not submit to your husband. It's better to obey God than man. If your husband is violent and abusive and addicted to drugs, has committed an affair, you have the complete freedom to go find someone to help you and rescue your husband. You don't need to submit to that. If you're in a home of abuse, consistent abuse, and your Bible and your husband's saying, well, you got to submit to me, that's not Jesus. That's not the Lord. Now, there are exceptions, but here we see this idea that the wives are called to submit to their, and I want to point this out. This is important. Notice he used the word to your own husbands. 
So, wives, you're not, you're not called to submit to someone else's husband. Did you know that? Now, I know it's like, well, obviously we don't need to say that, but I think it's worth saying this. The Bible never commands nor recommends a general submission of women unto men. It is commanded only in the spheres of the home and the church. God does not command that men should have exclusive authority in the area of politics, business, education, and so on. If you want to argue that, I'd be happy to. You've got to bring me a verse, though. Okay? That means, ladies, if so, just because he's a hey, you know, I'm a man, the Bible says, no, it doesn't. You're not my husband. You can just be like, get out of here. You can do that. You could just be a swerve. You could do the swerve thing. Get on out of there. But to your own husbands, lady, you are certainly called. You're called to submit. And notice this. This is huge. As is what? Fitting. Look at verse 18. It's fitting in the Lord. That's the idea here. It's fitting in the Lord. This speaks of motive. This speaks of why you come under the authority of your husband. Okay? Because it fits the things of God. It might not fit your husband's deserved behavior. Most of the time, it doesn't fit. Let's just be real. It's like an old T-shirt that you grew out of. If that's what you're submitting for, if you're going, all right, I'm going to trust you, honey. It's your decision, all right? But it's only because you've read your Bible every morning this week. It's only because you have a job now, okay? It's fitting in the Lord. It might not fit your husband's behavior. Listen, it might not fit your personality because you're the stronger leader, but it fits the Lord. It might not fit your friends and culture's opinion. It might seem oppressive. It shouldn't be. It might fit that way in culture, or it might not fit that way, rather, but it fits the Lord. And lastly, it might not fit your personal upbringing where you saw um, really oppressive leadership from dad and really maybe, on the other hand, maybe um, contentious, um, suffocating relationship from mom with dad where she caps him and doesn't let him lead. Paul says, listen, you're new in Christ. You're no longer defined by what's happened to you. You're no longer defined by your own, necessarily even what you think it feels right. You're no longer defined by what culture says is right. You are defined by Jesus Christ, who gives you a new way to be under authority. So you can submit unto the Lord. Now, here we go now, husbands. And the good news of this, verse 19, um, this is now to safeguard the wives. You understand this? So when this is working well, it's like a beautiful figure eight kind of thing. It's harmonious. It's working. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter towards them. So wives, submit unto your husbands. And this, we're not talking just, a lot of times we think about like two separate scenarios. We're like, oh, Paul, what about when the husband's a jerk, you know? And then love your wives. What about when she's like not lovable? Like we kind of, <laughs> let me, what Paul is giving is a vision of two separate recipients who are following Jesus. And even if it's just one, they're following Jesus. They're seeking to be Followers of him and how they live their lives. And here with husbands, it's love your wives. Agape your wives. We know this, right? Agape, unconditional love. This is not a feeling. You know, what this means is, it doesn't say husbands like your wives. Like, you should like your wife. Like, 
In fact, if you continue to pursue your love for them, you will like your wife. You should like your wife. But, but there's times where, listen, what, what, what once was is no longer what is. Because when you were dating, he, ooh, he had to win you. And now he got you. Now what? Husbands, you were Mach 10 before she was your wife, before you even put a ring on it. And now you're married. Now, now what? Paul says, love your wives. Agape your wives. And notice this, and do not be bitter towards them. The word love has to do with sacrificial. We know Ephesians says, like Christ loved the church, right? So look at Jesus to see what that love looks like. Again, but the big idea of this love is this is an incredible description. It's love that doesn't lead to a bitterness towards your wife. Now, I always read this verse as do not be bitter with them. And then I had to teach a Bible study on it. And I read the Greek. And I don't read Greek, but I read someone who translated Greek, just so you know. And the word towards is completely different than being bitter with someone. But they work together. Okay? To be bitter towards someone is they feel the bitterness. You're bitter towards them. The, the home life is not, we could say, sweet. It's bitter. But when you're bitter towards someone, it's because you're bitter with someone, right? This is what, what Paul is talking about. He's talking about a bitterness within that has become a bitterness towards. And he's saying it's antithetical to loving your wife. Love your wife and do not be bitter towards them. That obviously means to uproot the bitterness within you. To look to Jesus who is not bitter with you. Who loves you. Who, who not just not just bears up with you, not just tolerates you, but loves you ferociously. And, and the Bible says, let all bitterness be put away from you. Get that out of you. It's a root. Hebrew says it defiles many. It takes a deep root. It starts with a little feeling, and then it, it's a feeling that's unchecked. It's a, it's a feeling that's not submitted to the gospel. It's a feeling that's not brought into the presence of God. It's a feeling that's not prayed about. And that feeling slowly but subtly takes deep root and it defiles your household. And now the bitterness within is now bitterness towards. And your kids know it. And your wife knows it. And you're sweet to everyone else. But when you come home, it's bitter. It's bitter. Um, maybe it's because she hasn't respected me. She hasn't done her verse. Maybe it's a bitterness that is rooted in discontentment because you're not seeing your wife for the gift that she is and you need to revisit that. And you're going, man, I, just, I had some other expectation and now you have her and now you're unsatisfied because your wife isn't whatever it is, fill in the blank. Paul says, follow Jesus, be in intimate relationship with Jesus, expose those things in your heart to Jesus. He leads fathers as a safeguard to their wives. They're leading their wives. So if my wife, if Brittany is going to have to come under rank to a broken person like Andrew, I'm in desperate need of God's spirit. I'm in desperate need of God's grace to help me love Brittany in such a way that it's not bitter. I'm never bitter towards her. I'm never bitter in my household, but hopefully there's sweetness through my relationship with her. Sweetness. Uh, if you're single, okay, you can practice this now. When you get married, it's not like your bitterness goes away with people. If you're bitter a lot right now with people, you're going to be bitter with your future spouse. 
You know, I used to think that getting married is like pixie dust that makes you like, like a, in Mario, like the mushroom. Blah, blah, blah. That's like, I used to think like I would level up and become, and it's like, oh, no, I, oh, I have more problems. Okay, all right. Um, Proverbs 16, 23 says this. Uh, I want to just encourage husbands. Um, it'd be good to, to know this verse. Proverbs 16, 23 says, pleasant words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the bones. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 5 that husbands, the way that you love your wife, like Christ, is you wash her with the word. Your words, words of sweetness, words of affirmation, words of encouragement, words of reminder. Loving her sweetly and not bitterly, okay? And we are probably going to have a part two of this message, but let's see where we get. Number two, next sphere, next sphere, write this down, is the sphere of parental authority. And it says in verse... 20, with the sphere of parental authority that the gospel transforms, it says, children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged, okay? Um, So we have this picture here of parental authority transformed by the gospel, and it looks like this, obedient children to the parents in all things, and unprovoking, non-discouraging parents, okay? So obedient children, unprovoking, non-discouraging parents. Um, It can seem a bit intimidating, right? If you read this wrong, verse 21, do not provoke your children. Like, that can be discouraging if you're looking at that going, okay, so what I got to do is not get my kids mad at me. It's like, good luck with that one, right? That's not what it's saying. This is speaking of, of a resentment towards mom and dad, maybe because there's burdens that are way too impossible for them to bear. Maybe it's burdens that mom and dad are not even willing to carry themselves. So it provokes a sense of resentment. This is talking about the goal of parenting, which the negative is we don't want to lead our, especially spiritually, we don't want to parent in such a way that our kids end up resenting us because all we gave them was law and we were Pharisees in the household. The goal on the positive is we want our parenting relationship, this sphere of authority through the gospel, what my household becomes is a, a mini church. That's the goal. Like, I planted two churches this year, if you think about it, you know? Solus and the Lindy family, you know, we're still growing, multiplying, you know? Um, Matthew 28 is the great commission that Jesus gave his disciples, which is us. And We know this verse in Matthew 28, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So it's this vision of the whole world becoming learners of Jesus. That's our vision, certainly, for Boca Raton. I would love to see disciples, I would love to make disciples of all of Boca. Certainly of South Florida, Jesus' vision is the whole world. That's what he calls us to. But then he describes the the action items of that commission. In verse 20, 20, he says, teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, in September, we're going to be doing a whole series on discipleship. We'll be talking about what that looks like for us as a church to be followers of Jesus, okay? But here, what, Paul, or what Jesus is doing is clarifying what discipleship looks like. Discipleship can sometimes be like this pixie dust word that we throw in anything that has a Bible in it or the name of Jesus. Like, oh, we went bird watching and someone prayed. Discipleship, you know? Um, it's cool if you do that. Uh, invite me next time. But the, the vision that Jesus is giving here of discipleship is specific. It involves conversion, leading someone. My, my hope and my heart as a parent with my arrows of my children that God has given me is to shoot them at the bullseye of relationship with Jesus. It's my goal. 
is to shoot them there. So I, would, I can't wait. I'm praying for them. I'm, I'm excited to, I want to baptize my kids. That's the first thing. But then there's this next step, which is the sum of parenting, which is teaching them to observe all the things that I commanded you. Okay? The word observe, a better translation could be obey. Some of your Bibles say obey. Um, and that's worthy to be said because Jesus doesn't say, go teach them the information of what I've commanded. That's, by the way, that's easy. That's easy. Tell them what he said. That's easy. Discipleship is not teaching people what Jesus said. Discipleship is teaching people to obey what Jesus said. That's, that's way harder because that means that you actually have to practice what you're preaching. Uh, it's been said this way, that you can teach what you know, but you'll reproduce who you are. At home, you could be teaching, you could be doing kids' storybook Bible every night, you know, VBS programs. You could be te- but they have to see it, right? They have, so this is discipleship. Now, why does Jesus tell us, in applying this to parenthood and even just our lives, why does Jesus say that we should go teach people to obey? Answer, because you have to learn it. Obedience does not come natural. If you think it does, I disagree, okay? Um, in fact, Hebrews 5.8 says that Jesus, as a son, Hebrews 5.8 says Jesus learned obedience as God who became a man. Um, that's why when the word actually, it's really interesting in Greek, um, the word make disciples there. In the Greek, it's this word mathetuo, where we get our word mathematics. Again, something you have to be taught. No one ever, you don't wake up and go, oh, algebra. There it is. Just had a dream about it, okay? No, like this is something that has to be taught. Obedience is something that has to be taught. That's why discipleship is teaching us. We gotta learn how to obey Jesus. That's the goal in the home, is to teach my kids not just to know, I don't wanna raise a bunch of baptized know-it-alls. My gosh. Like, it's, I don't need, who, like nobody cares what you know anymore, guys. There's Google. Like, nobody cares. Like, okay, you're so smart. My, my smartphone's smarter. Really? Like, how many of us know that if we want to see people actually reached in the 21st century with the gospel of Jesus, Christians actually have to start living out what they say they know? Amen? Right? Like, th- this is what we need. This is what our culture, our time needs, and certainly your home needs this, right? Because, listen, teaching them to obey, it's important. That's what we're called to do. But the big idea that Paul's getting at is not just what you obey, or or sorry, it's not just uh, what you teach them, but how you teach them. Let's say this. Teach them to obey, but listen, how you teach your children what to obey is just as, if not more important than even what you're teaching them. Okay, There's a way to do discipleship. There's a way to lead people to follow Jesus that will provoke them to discouragement. I've heard it said, you know, it's like when, when we say, for example, if a church does a series on the Ten Commandments and doesn't mention the cross, that is a 10-week series where you're killing your church slowly. Do this, do this, do this. So it's not just what we're teaching. Obey. It's how we're teaching them. It's the difference, what we're teaching our kids, the difference. This is, let me say this. The, the needle that needs to be thread here in parenting, is making sure that your kids understand the difference between religion and the gospel. Everything depends on this. 
Because if all you're teaching your kids is moralistic, what's been called moralistic deism, God's up there, do good things. Behave well. You know, don't embarrass our family. Okay? What's going to happen to your child is that when they encounter life apart from Jesus and they go to college and they experience the fun of without Jesus, you know what they're going to do? They're going to go, this is more fun. This is more satisfying. Because it is. Like, let's not act like sin isn't pleasurable for a time. You know, Moses, the Bible says he resisted the passing pleasures of, of, of Egypt. And so if all you're feeding your kids to eat is behaviorism, it's religion, which religion is this, I obey so that I can be accepted by God. Tim Keller says religion is I obey, therefore I am accepted. The gospel says I am accepted by God through Christ, therefore I obey. Not the same thing. Not the same thing. Worlds apart. They even sound similar. That's the problem. Polar opposites. So you're parenting with your kids. It's got to be gospel-centered. And that comes through communicating the gospel that, hey, you don't do good things for God to love you. God loves you. He loves you before you did a thing. But that love also has to come through you in your parenting. It can't just be words. You have to live the gospel to them. When they fail, when they fall short, which they will, they will disappoint you. They will not reach the expectations you had. Are you going to show them Jesus or are you going to show them law? That doesn't mean don't ground them. Hold on. He says don't discourage them. He doesn't say don't discipline them. In fact, discipline is where we get the, the word for discipleship. Okay? Um, it's not about discipline. It's how you discipline. So anytime I discipline my children, I will immediately follow up my discipline by wrapping them up in my arms, comforting them with the warmth of my love, looking them in the eyes, and reminding them, I love you. You don't obey so that you're accepted by dad. Dad loves you. Because I want them to understand that discipline is not synonymous with disapproval. It's love. I love you. And I want to teach you to obey in a gospel-centered way. The goal of parenting, we'll close with this, and we'll get into the vocational sphere next week. The goal of parenting is the same goal for all of our lives. Um, my life verse is Psalm 34.8. Psalm 34, 8 says this, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Guys, that is what we're, what we're after. That's what we're after as parents. We, we want to give our kids a taste, not of religion, because they'll spit that junk out and they'll taste everything else. But when you taste the sweetness of who God really is, the Bible says that, that to a hungry soul, everything bitter is sweet. They'll start, they'll if you haven't tasted in the, the sweetness of who God is and his love for you, that's probably why you're living in sin right now. Because you're, you're not tasting of God. You think you need to perform your way back to God. God says, come to the table. I've given you a seat at the table through my son. Come sit, come be with me, taste and see that I'm good.